Welcome to the Water Paint Podcast. My name is Conrad Jacobs. And I'm Glyn Williams. Well, we're back from Halifax, but in today's episode, we have an interview that we actually did in Halifax with Naval Sethner, who is the lead for the Boston Pediatric Pain Program and the man who set up the first rehabilitation program for children in the world. But Glinda, there are actually a few other things I want to discuss with you, I'm afraid. Glinda, I've got to know you as a stoic character, somebody who takes things on the chin. But I know you've been suffering a little bit the last few months. First, the Welsh rugby team went out in the quarterfinals to Argentina, a bit unexpected. And your beloved Manchester United are struggling a bit. How are you at the moment? Well, you know, it's part and parcel of being a sports fan, I suppose. Um, I've had 20-something years of unparalleled victories, so it's quite hard to get used to the defeats quite so easily. But we'll be back one day. Different manager, different owners, different players. Then we might might have some success. The Welsh rugby, they did better than we thought, actually. And thrashing Australia 40 points to six was uh, one of the joys that I will get very rarely in life. So actually, there have been some high spots since we got back. Okay. I won't dig any deeper. So reflecting on the conference, is there anything else that you want to share that you found interesting? Yeah, actually, because we're interviewing Navel, well, we're playing the interview we did with Navel, I felt there was a lot of good stuff about interdisciplinary pain rehabilitation programs. And so we learned a lot from many different centers around the world. But actually, one really interesting thing came out of his center in Boston that his team are doing to help get ready the young people who are coming for the pain rehabilitation program, which they called Prepare. And it was a way of using a structured motivational interviewing prior to the child turning up for the program to help really with engagement. I suppose, is the bottom line so that the child knew and the family, the child and the family knew what was going to happen at the program and they could work out the barriers that there might be for them. So they were sort of dealt with and identified prior to starting. And I think that's one of the biggest concerns a lot of us have is that young people and their families come along to the pain rehabilitation programs and they're not actually ready for it or they haven't really understood what it's going to be about or how it's going to be delivered or what the ideas of the treatment or the ethos of the treatment is going to be. And that can obviously mean that the program is not as effective for them, at least initially, or that they need more time or in the worst case scenarios, it fails because it's just not the right point for it to be delivered for this child and their family. And they demonstrated good results from this in the sense of it seemed to make the outcome's more effective, but it also seemed to decrease the amount of time that the child needed to spend in the program, which could only be good. There's something there for us all to learn, and it seems a really positive, constructive addition to the way they deliver their pain management program. I was there as well, and I thought it was a fascinating symposium as well. And one of the things that struck me was that in a previous study, it's been found that about 75% of patients who enter a rehabilitation program are what is sometimes called not ready to engage in program. Uh, That was an astonishing figure, of course. And if you can reduce that number with a program like this, that would be very beneficial. Absolutely. And it's got to be beneficial to the program as well, because if you can time it right for these families, it's going to be more effective, but you're also going to use your slots that you have far more wisely and effectively. Exactly. I think there's something very much to be built on there. And we both have or will have pain rehabilitation programs. So it's certainly something I'm going to take away and try and incorporate into what we do. 
Yeah. We tend to have a number of outpatient programs before we invite patients to our intensive rehabilitation program. During those outpatient appointments, we try to gauge what people's motivation is from different perspectives, from occupational therapy perspective, from a physiotherapy perspective, and from a psychology perspective as well. And then we try to sit down together and we talk about it, talk about whether the family is ready, whether the child is ready. But still, even at that point, it's difficult to decide what to do because there may be factors that we are unaware of. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've often described chronic pain patients as a little bit like peeling an onion. The more you get to know them and the more you peel off the layers, the more information you find. And quite often, some of the things that act as barriers towards either engagement or success of treatment only come out as time goes on. Exactly. And if this, again, as I said, if this is another layer to A, help you understand the patient and the family that you're seeing, but also prepare them through the motivational interviewing, I think it can only help the process. Okay, this is a fascinating topic, of course, and we've talked about this before, and I'm sure we'll talk about it again at some stage in the future. But shall we listen to our interview with Navel? Yes, let's get on with that. We're here in Nova Scotia, but also Navel, you're in Nova Scotia as well with us. It's lovely to see you here, and thank you very much for taking part in our podcast today. I'm pleased to be here, and good to see you guys. Now, you're kindly coming to talk to us about pain rehabilitation programs for children and young people. Before we get into that, we'd like to ask you just a couple of questions to get to know you a little bit more. So how did you first get involved with pain? I was not trained in pain. I'm a pediatric anesthesiologist, and my interest was regional anesthesia. At the time, I joined the Children's Hospital, Boston Children's Hospital. Nobody was doing regional anesthesia. And in those days, children after surgery, particularly infants, were getting no pain medications. They would prescribe intramuscular medications. And when we used to go in and do post-operative visit, our patients were in distress from pain. And so we reviewed the literature. In those days, there was very little information in the literature. There was one good study from Australia that showed that kids refuse medication after surgery because it was given intramuscularly. So we presented that. And they agreed that we will use only one type of pain medication, which was morphine. And they said they don't know the safety of it in children. So they requested that every time a child gets a medication, that one of us, the anesthesiologist, should be by the bedside for 20 minutes until the whole dose goes in. And it's safe. So we did that and we demonstrated that you can give it safely and without significant side effect. And that's how this, my involvement in pain management started, really. And that's quite an amazing journey that it's gone from that to where where we are today. But it seems like the way you set about it and all the people you had to take on board and take on that journey with you was really, you know, laid the groundwork for how you've worked all these years. And how did you make the step then from acute pain to chronic pain? So I think it was a natural transition as we were taking care of acute pain. The other thing in those days that at Children's Hospital in Boston, a good number of orthopedic surgeons were not fully trained in pediatric surgery. So they were primarily in the adult hospitals next to us, and they would come and do surgery on adolescents. So they were more familiar with the pain management because the adult pain management were ahead of us. 
So they would come and say, I did hip surgery and the MRI looks perfect. And I don't understand why this child parent keeps on calling me and saying their pain is worse and worse. And they said they did post-op imaging and all looks fine. So we didn't know what to do with these patients. So we go and look it up. We used to attend those days that are, there were in many pediatric conferences. So we used to go to adult conferences. So for chronic pain in those days, there were only maybe two medications <laughs> So one was the NSAID, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medication, and the other was amitriptyline. And so we said, okay, well, so we would say to the surgeon, start them on this medication and get a call and say, well, I tried it, but I'm not comfortable increasing the dose. Can you take care of this patient? So myself and my colleagues, so we used to see these patients informally. Even the chief of anesthesia didn't know whether we were doing that. And we realized that, yes, we do this, it's not helping. So we started to emulate what the adults do. We started doing regional blocks on them to see if the pain goes away or not. And we were very naive in those days. And we thought, okay, if I do a block and pain goes away, that means something wrong structurally. And if it doesn't go away, then we don't know what's, what's going on with the patient. So in those days, there aren't many psychologists that were around to consult with. So that's how I got into the chronic pain. And so as part of that long journey that you've been on, yeah. you've helped establish or set up one of the first pain management programs for children and young That's people. Right. So how did that actually come about? So then what happened is that we started getting a lot of these consults from the orthopedic and we were all day working in the operating room and the orthopedic would send us a text message, not text message, in those ways there are no texts, but pages. Carry a picture. Yeah. And say... I have a patient and if you can come after five o'clock to come and see them before you go home. So at the end of the day, we'll run to the orthopedic clinic, see a patient quickly, give them some instructions. But then we thought, well, we're giving them medication. We're not doing any follow-up. So we need to follow up with these patients. So then we said, well, we have to have administrative assistance. We need to have some clinic space. So myself and my colleague went to our chief of anesthesia. And we said to him, you know, we've been doing this on the side, taking care of these patients with chronic pain, but now we are overwhelmed with it. We need time, we need space. So he looked at us and he said to us, I think that's laudable job that you guys doing, but let me tell you. And he was a very experienced anesthesiologist. And he said to us, you know, this is just a fact. If there was a need for pediatric pain, somebody would have figured it out a long time ago. So my advice to you guys, don't waste your time. So we were young and we were very junior, so we weren't going to argue with the chief of anesthesia. So we said, thank you. And we walked out and we were very furious. (laughs) So we thought, well, there must be a way to do it. So we went to the hospital administration and we told them, that we've been doing something like this and we don't know if this is going to last or not, but there's a need for it now. So administrator looked at it and said, wow, a new service. That's amazing. We can help you with it. And, and so that's how it started. <laughs> so you were one of the first. And, yeah. and so who inspired you? Kind of who, who were your, yeah. the people that you looked up to and, and or other services? Yeah, so it was very interesting that In those days, we were not trained in pain, so we didn't know much about pain. 
all we wanted to do on those days just to take care of patients after surgery. That's all we wanted to do. In those days, there was some literature coming out in adolescent literature that if you manage the pain effectively, patient can get out of the hospital faster, they become more functional faster, their bowels move faster, we can get them off the narcotics, which causes all kinds of side effects. So that's really where our focus was because we knew nothing about chronic pain. And getting into the chronic pain, we didn't even know what we we're going to do. So we were overwhelmed with this chronic pain. Like, what are we going to do? We have only two types of medication and it's not helping. So as we went and looked at the literature, we thought we have to involve a psychologist because a lot of these kids were getting very upset, frustrated, angry. They didn't want to come back for follow-up because we didn't have anything to offer. We were doing some interventional stuff but they will get some pain relief for a short period of time. And then they're back to where they were before the pension. And we realized that this isn't really not going to work. So one of our psychologists in those days had just written the first paper on treating migraine in children with biobehavioral intervention. And it was actually one of the first papers in the literature that really was the inspiring paper for all the psychologists. And who was that? It was Bruce Masick, who later became the chief at Massachusetts Journal Hospital. So we called Bruce and said, you know, we started this. Why don't we start a pain group so we can treat these patients? So we met with Bruce and then we said, well, these orthopedic patients need somebody to help them move after surgery because they're bedridden or on wheelchair or on crutches and we can't get them moving independently. So we called one of the senior physical therapists who retired. She still comes to the hospital. She took care of patients during the polio epidemic. So she was very much into physical mobilization. Her name is Claire McCarthy. So between Bruce, Claire, and two of us, we started a pain service, which was informal, not announced in the hospital. And we did it for almost three, four years. What year are we talking about? So, so this when, when was... When did you first start your first program? So officially, we started February 2nd. Officially, we announced it in 1986. But before that, for the previous three years, we were working on our own, not official service, but we were working together. And we were started writing abstract from our experience, four patients, five patients. <laughs> so we started getting recognition, which was very helpful. And by 1988, we used to get a lot of patients with CRPS. So between four of us, we we're treating these patients. On so those days, we used to admit them, put a catheter in, we do physical therapy, psychological support, and we started getting good results. So one of the family whose kids really did very well, and they were well-to-do family, went to the governor of Massachusetts. It was Dr. Dukakis, and he's now a professor of economics. He was very empathetic and sympathetic, and he declared the month of August CRPS in Massachusetts. And all of a sudden, we got tremendous recognition and we started getting enthusiastic about the chronic pain, <laughs> but still we didn't recognize that it was not something that easy, but that helped us in terms of getting the support from our department. Then we announced it 
1986 that we have a pain service. And do you think you were the first one, the first program for children in the world? I believe so. I mean, the first program who came with the concept of multidisciplinary. There were some programs which we later found, but it was run by psychologists, but it was not a multidisciplinary. It was individual and mostly biobehavioral interventions. The Canadian was one of the group. And there were a few, I think, in England, rheumatologists, not rheumatologists, but the psychologists who care for rheumatological patients. But these were patients with organic disease, you know, chronic rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and things like that. So they started emphasizing the fact that psychological component is very important part of treatment for the chronic pain. And we realized that early in our course as well. So if we wind that on, because you started off the idea of multidisciplinary yeah. treatment and the psychologist, physiotherapist alongside the physicians. Now, with your experience, what do you think are the essential things that make up a pain management program? Definitely these interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary is extremely, I think it's now the standard of care because there isn't any other treatment that will give you the positive outcomes compared to the interdisciplinary treatment. There are now at least three or four good papers in the literature where it shows that the success rate, not only immediate success rate, but one year and five year and then five to seven years, and the Germans, we've gone to five to seven years, the Germans have it up to 10 years, shows that the outcomes with this kind of treatment has sustained benefit, and almost three out of four patients do well in terms of their quality of life. So there's really, in my mind, there's no doubt, and I think is becoming the standard, is that there isn't any other treatment, whether interventional, medication, or alternative, integrative treatment, there isn't any other treatment that has the same outcome. You mentioned when you were talking there, you said both interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary, and those terms get used interchangeably a lot. Yes. Do you see a difference between interdisciplinary working? So we started as a multidisciplinary and in the sense that we were multiple disciplines working together, but we were all in our own silos. So the patient will come, So if we schedule a day for a patient for a follow-up, they come and see me for 45 minutes in our clinic. Then they go to the outpatient PT clinic. They see a PT provider, but not necessarily the same provider every time they see. And then they go to psychology outpatient clinic, and they will see a psychologist. Most of the time, the same psychologist, but sometimes a different psychologist. And those days we were all kind of volunteering our time. It wasn't, nobody was giving us extra time to do it. So everybody was busy. We would communicate, but in the hallway, hey, did you see this patient today? Oh, what did you think? Oh, I'll call you tomorrow. I'll let you know I'm busy now. (laughs) Although we knew we were all on the same page in terms of treatment, definitely. But we didn't have that communication that was very important. Like, what did you find out today in what are the things that this patient needs the most? Is it the physical therapy or more psychiatric, higher level intervention and things like that? So we still didn't know, didn't have the full picture of who this patient is 
but it was helpful, but was not helpful for all patients. So there was still a small number of patients who failed. We need to find a way to help those patients. So we thought, okay, let's find a place where we can all be together under one roof and see the patient together, talk about the patient, because there's also the extension of the family issues and school issues and social issues and peers issues and things like that. So we started to realize that this is more complex than we think. We wanted to start the interdisciplinary team many decades ago, but we didn't get the support for few reasons. One, we didn't have the billing code. So our hospital said, no, we can't have a service like that because nobody will pay for it. So we thought, okay. So in those days, we were trying to convince the insurance company, the healthcare insurance company, our patients need more than once a week physical therapy, needs more than once a week psychological support. And they said, no, the current standard is once a week and that's it. So we got together and we applied for the NIH grant. We thought we need a grant because this is required a lot of financial support. We want to do something like that. So we got a grant for two years. And in that two years, we had research fellows with us and we completed five studies. And one of them was if we can increase the number of PT for patients with CRPS. So what happened is that we tried to demonstrate that, and we did, but it was not a clean study because in those days, we started the psychological intervention as well. So we couldn't withhold the psychological treatment while we're giving them physical treatment. But anyway, it got published in Journal of Pediatrics. So now we have data, we have some support, and we did the other studies as well. And even then, we didn't get the support. So then finally, we thought we need the money. Where are we going to get this financial support? So we put together all our information, all the studies we've done, all our experience, and we found a donor. And that donor gave us the seed money. And for that reason, our program is called Mayo Family. And that's how we started. So a family and a child make their journey through the program, through your program. What is the difference between a child who is successful at the end of the program and a child who isn't successful? What are the essential steps that the child and the family need to take in order to improve in terms of their functioning? Yeah. I would put on the top of the list is buying into the concept of the biopsychosocial model. And very often we need a lot of education, not only the patient, but the parents as well. And many times the parents are not on the same page. Usually the father is more aggressive in terms or not validating the child pain. Nothing wrong with you. Why you're it's not... A typical scenario, you're saying. That's right. And then the mothers are empathetic and sympathetic and supportive, but at the same time, sometimes there's enmeshment. And that's another problem. The other issues is sometimes if one of the parents have chronic pain and that confuses a child. And they learn by modeling, and then we have to undo that. So the patients who don't do well, we don't know exactly why. One of it is they're not well-prepared or willing, motivated, or accepting the fact that if I engage in this program and commit to it, I'm going to get better. And that's why we're doing a lot of studies in terms of preparing the child before there's ongoing study. And the other thing is that 
from our long-term studies, we think because we followed them five to seven years after they left our program. And unfortunately, not all of them returned there or they were willing to be in the study, but they didn't complete our the study. But a good number of these patients who had premorbid mood and psychological issues were kind of ongoing and they required continued support that they left us. And some of them developed new chronic pain conditions. And then the other thing is that they went from our model to a dull model, which is biomedical. So they fed into their pain condition and probably disability as well. And so I don't know the answer, but this is our impression from following these patients. So if you've talked about some of the um, sort of the more global way of looking at patients, you know, they could come from any diagnosis from what you've been talking about. But is there any particular diagnoses as such that you think the programs are more applicable for or diagnoses that, you know, this program just doesn't work for? This is a difficult question to answer because very often the only patients that I can think of will come with clean diagnosis patient with chronic migraines, post-concussion, but most of our patients come with multi-side pain complaints. And although we try to kind of categorize them like, what is your primary? What is bothering you the most? What is the second most bothering you? And we try to kind of make a list of the most bothersome to the least bothersome, but that also changes over time. So to be honest with you, I think we tried to think about all these things and we gave up. And what we concluded that irrespective of where the pain is, we're going to try our model and see who is going to benefit from it or not. And I suppose if we then look at it from the other side of the coin, do you think this model that you've set up is good, not just for pain? So would you consider taking patients into your service or a service like this that have other functional symptoms, but maybe don't have pain? So we are seriously considering that mainly because to your point, we have admitted patients with functional neurologic disorder. And once they're in the program, we realize, hmm, the pain is not the main issue. So we are thinking seriously. And as we expand, we are going to take those patients because I think we can help them irrespective of whether they have a pain or not. Very often the pain is secondary. I mean, if we take a good history, we'll see that this problem was brewing, brewing, brewing. And then there was an event that caused pain and then they come to us. And so for that also reasoned, the chief of the stroke clinic in our hospital has reached out to me and saying that I have kids with post-stroke, you know, physical difficulties and, you know, they're young, they become depressed, they become anxious because they can't do the things that their peers can do. Can you guys help them? So we're considering that also. Many, many pain management services in the United Kingdom report that the complexity of patients has increased enormously over the last 10 years. So we see more children with mental health issues, children who are on the autistic spectrum. About 30% of our patients in Oxford are on the autistic spectrum. We see children who have gender identity questions as well. And walking around the halls here in in Halifax, it sounds to me like that's a, a global phenomenon as well. And it begs the question, to what extent 
should we just do pain management? And to what extent should we help children with their mental health? To what extent yeah. are we maybe even an autism service? Do you, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, you're correct. This is a kind of universal problem now. And I mean, I talk to people from Australia, they're having the same problem, UK, Canada. So, and we're seeing this kind of population, I would say 2018, 2019, then just started initially. We were very reluctant to admit patients with autism spectrum disorder, although sometimes we diagnose them after the admission because they were not diagnosed previously. And similarly, also patients with uh, learning disability, a good number of patients are diagnosed with us with ADHD. And so this was just like taking off. But during the pandemic of COVID and after that, these number of patients increased. We don't have any admissions without either a patient with gender dysphoria or ASD, we call it for short. But also we're seeing the triad of ASD, gender dysphoria, and chronic pain. So this is a new group of patients we're seeing, which we don't know why, but that's the new population that we're seeing. Now, we initially, as I said, we said, okay, let's try to take patients with high-functioning ASD. And they did really well because they like structures and if the parents are supportive and the school is supportive, they're really successful going back to their environment. But then also we had failures because of the mental health issue. And some of these patients had premorbid issues that were not really treated effectively. And by the time they come to us, they're very complex. Some of them, we refer them to high intensity psych treatment. Some of them, we refer them to a ASD clinic so definitely some of these complex patients need a different team, interdisciplinary team to help them. Do you think in some ways we should be running separate programs for them, but still within a pain management framework? I think that'll be ideal. The problem is they do well one-on-one, but when it comes to group treatment, they have a hard time to engage in group treatment. So we have to separate them from when there's a group treatment. And so, yeah, you're right. Some of these patients love to get engaged and be accepted, and those are great. They're high-functioning, but good number of them, they don't do well at all in group. So they need, definitely, they need a separate kind of team or separate, I would say, schedule for management. One other thing your program is maybe unique for is that you have a rolling program, whereas most other programs around the world have a very fixed time that we yes. see the patients for. And then we were talking in a meeting earlier and you it was alluded to the fact that that was all about billing. But actually, I yeah. wondered if you could reflect on it a little bit and, and think about whether you actually think having the rolling program becomes more beneficial or less beneficial yeah. than having a fixed time. I think you're right. I mean, talking to people who started programs with two weeks only, they tell us now they've gone to four weeks. And we learned this early in our program is that we learned it from patients with CRPS because there's also a whole range of them, spectrum of them. And there were those who needed three weeks and they were more functional. Some needed six weeks, some needed even longer. So, and sometimes we had debate among ourselves. 
like patients should go and somebody will say, no, but this patient still needs this part of the treatment or that part of the treatment, or we need to help the family. And I confess I was wrong multiple times when I said, no, just let's get them out. They're fine. Or some patients don't do well. And then the last week (laughs) when we give them an extension, and maybe that's a motivational one, we tell them, if you want to stay another week, you have to show us what is your goal. And we want you to accomplish this and they get motivated. So, but definitely it's so variable. And some patients don't do it for the first two weeks. I mean, they're still struggling emotionally, psychologically, physically. Their whole environment has changed because they come and stay in a hotel close to the hospital. So they're away from home, away from the family. So we added stress. And so after two weeks, all of a sudden they start to turn around and then slowly improve. So yeah, I think we all agree now in our program that no, we're not going to do it unfixed. And what's the medium length of time that you tend to have patients for? I would say between four and six on the average. And that's increased with time. So we were four, we were three to four, and then we extended to five. But in the last, I would say two years, we're between four and six, because we started to be be more aggressive. We started to, in terms of the treatment, we changed our approach and we think that is helping. And sometimes we probably were too gentle and too slow. It's not the patient to us <laughs> because we didn't know how they're going to react. But then what we now do is we have aggressive treatment. If they fly, they fly. If they don't, then we slow down. So we kind of tailor it to each individual patient rather than generalize it like every patient needs four weeks or only patient needs six weeks. We have a slightly different model in that kind of we admit patients for two weeks maybe, and then we feel that during those two weeks, we can give them quite a lot of knowledge, education, maybe some strategies, and then we want them to go home because we want them to put things into practice. And then they come back and we find out what's happening and and what's gone well, what hasn't gone well. Maybe they need a bit more intensive treatment at that point. That's a very good point. And we do that kind of assessment as well. So what we do, because they're in our treatment five days a week and they're off on the weekend and they're off on the holidays and many of them go back to their home and we give them our recreational therapist and our occupational therapist We'll give them community activity plan and we expect them to do certain activities or certain several hours of activity per day. And then they come back on Monday and we say, how did your weekend go? Tell me about physical activity. Tell me your, when you went out with your friends, with your family, your, how did you sleep in your own bed versus in the hotel? And so we get good feedback from that. And we take that into account in terms of the duration of the treatment, definitely. But that's a very good point. And we always tell our parents and patients that when you're in the program, this is a simulation. It's not a real life. The real life when you go back. What are the lessons that you've learned over the decades that you've been working in this field about the role of medication in chronic pain? So, I mean, for years and years, I did nothing but medications and interventional procedures because there was no information in children and we tried to emulate what the adults did. But soon we realized that that was not a good strategy in the sense that didn't help. In fact, in some patients, we made them worse. 
So many of the medications that we used to prescribe, we don't prescribe any more medication in our rehabilitation. I take that back. We do, but not pain medication. We mostly psychopharm medication for anxiety, depression, whatever other mood issues they have, obsessive compulsiveness and things like that. And we do prescribe sleep medications because some of them have horrible sleep issue even before the pain started. And as you folks know, that sleep disruption makes the chronic pain worse. And so, but we do not prescribe any analgesic medication because by the time they come to us, they have already tried everything. And in fact, if they are on it, we wean them off, mainly because all these medications cause side effects. So some of the patients will come to us and then say, I have brain fog and they tell us I'm slow. I can't remember. And that's why I don't go to school. And that's why I don't do my homework because I can't focus. And I would say a good number of patients, when we take them off some of these medications, they start to develop mental clarity. And I'm not blaming anybody for prescribing medication because I myself did it. But when you're out in the real world and you're the only clinician taking our patient, you have to do something to help the patient. In certain patients, it helps their anxiety. And certain patients have their sleep, so they feel the pain is better. But it's not a long-term solution. It's a very short-term. One of the things I think a lot of us struggle with is trying to convince whoever, whatever country we're in, our people who've got the purse strings to release them and let, let us start a program like this. So how would you talk about the benefits and the outcomes to make these people want to let us loose and start programs such as this? Yeah. Unfortunately, the bean counters always look for what they're going to get out of it. <laughs> Are you going to make profit for them or not? And unfortunately, that's the bottom line everywhere. And so I would say the hospital leadership who have no clue about what we do and what patients with chronic pain suffer from, that's the problem. But there is now enough literature that one can go to the leadership and say, here it is. If we don't treat this pain early in life, pain will persist into adulthood and then they become disabled and non-productive citizen. So I think there is enough literature. And also there are a couple of, uh, there's one from German, one from the United States, and I think a couple more to show that you can reduce the healthcare utilization. I think that will get their attention. Thank you so much for answering all these questions. We've got one final question for you. You've been working in pain for a long time. What has kept you so fascinated in this topic? I think I like to be challenged, <laughs> but also I think we all as clinicians want to help patients. And this group of patients, unfortunately, have nowhere to go. And they're so misunderstood, undertreated. And because not only they're suffering, but the whole family is suffering. It affects the other siblings. It affects the parents. We have seen parents who, one of the parents quit their job to take care of their kids. Some of them borrow money to care for their kids because insurance doesn't cover everything. We have seen parents split because of the financial issue taking care of this child or because of the stress that it can cause for the whole family. So yeah, that's, I think, what keeps me going. Oh, Neville, can only thank you. You've been incredibly generous with your time. Thank you. 
enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you very much for the opportunity. That was a really interesting interview with someone who was actually there right at the beginning, who started a program, a pain management program, and was in fact the first person who did so. What did you think? Yeah, no, I thought it was brilliant. For someone who's maybe as old as I am, when I first started in paediatric pain, I was sort of on the tail end of the history that Naval was talking about. And so the the ideas about the undertreatment of pain in children, both acutely and chronically, and the limited amount of techniques that we used and the worries about safety for analgesic interventions, et cetera, were things that I was just catching the tail end of and got better at the beginning of my career. So it's, for me, fascinating to listen to that, but also fascinating to listen to the, the way he set up the service, taking those ideas that were sort of very much in the embryonic stage and using ideas that were coming from adults, using ideas that were coming from other specialities and putting them into pediatric pain. I thought that was really interesting and a lot of lessons there for all of us. Well, following on from your comments about him setting up his service, what struck me was the difficulties that he faced in doing so and some of the institutional hurdles that one of his colleagues said that this was a bit of a fad and some of the other organisational issues that he faced as well. And it will have struck a chord with anyone who's ever tried to set up a programme, a pain management programme, or indeed any other service, because of the hurdles that they face. Yes, well, I think, uh, I know we can speak about it from an NHS perspective, but I, I suspect it's the same the world over. It's about the money and getting the resource together and trying to get people to understand that what is essentially quite an expensive service to set up and run, because it's very staff heavy, has those beneficial effects. And even with the amount of data that Naval talked about that's coming out from Germany and from the States where programs like this are running, and from Bath as well, because it is so expensive, the commissioners or whoever's holding the purse strings, they only see the upfront costs. They don't necessarily see the long-term savings and benefits, and obviously the the health-related benefits for the families and the patients. So the other thing that I was fascinated by was listening to his story about the use of medication as well, namely that he started off only using analgesia for chronic pain to a position where he told us that he is currently not using any pain medication because he feels that many of the children he sees have already been on lots of different types of medication. Although he did say that he uses medication for anxiety, for low mood and for sleep. What did you make of that, Glyn? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think it's very multifactorial. And I think there's a whole another podcast or podcasts which could be made out of this. I did think it was interesting. I think we've all learned over the years and there's no evidence to say that we're wrong because there isn't much evidence about the use of pain medications for chronic pain in young people that, you know, medications are not supremely effective and they come with a lot of risks of side effects. And so we have moved away a lot from using medications, but I still, you know, I don't think it should be a blanket approach. I still see that there are some young people who do get benefit from certain medications in certain situations and the trial of them is is still worthwhile. Although usually by the time they've come to a pain management program, such as the ones we've been talking about, those trials have probably happened by that point and probably been unsuccessful. Mm. I did think it was interesting though using the other medications that he was talking about. And I, I don't know how common that is around the world in other pain management programs. 
And I think there's two sides to that argument. I mean, one, you know, if the child or any patient needs anxiolytics, antidepressants, etc., then there may be very good clinical reasons for them to be given. But equally, there's a lot of crossover between analgesics and those sorts of medications and what are you using them for and what effects are they actually having. And it does potentiate the medical model, which in some ways a lot of these interdisciplinary pain programs are trying to break down. So there's a lot of things in there to pick out. And I'm not saying it's right and I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it's a really complicated field. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I've got lots of questions and comments to make in relation to what you've just said. But as you said, really, I can feel another podcast about this coming on. So we'll wait for the next episode or, well, a few episodes down the line, maybe. Exactly. Anyway, I think at this point we should say goodbye, Conrad, and uh, wait for the next episode and thank everybody out there for listening. And if you have any comments, please email us on whatapainpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everybody. See you soon. Bye. Bye.